The following podcast is a presentation of Liberty Christian Fellowship, loving God and loving people in a hurting world. For more information about our church, visit us online at libertyobx.com. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter and Instagram for updates and encouragement. We hope this message inspires you and blesses you. Now prepare your hearts to hear a powerful word from God. God bless. Well, listen, um, we are going to be celebrating some baptisms in our second service today. When we do baptism sign-ups for in-service baptisms, folks just sign up for the baptisms for whichever one they sign up. We didn't have anybody sign up for the first service uh, baptisms. I think everybody signed up for the second service today. And we've got seven or more of them, folks that are, are going to be baptized today. So one of the things we get to do this morning as part of the family is we get to pray for them. Um, there's a word that we use sometimes. Um, sounds somewhat like a churchy word, but it's called intercession. And uh, basically what that word means is that we get to intercede in prayer for someone else. Sometimes you might hear the phrase, stand in the gap. And uh, this isn't just a physical reality that we are born into as Christians when we place our faith in Jesus, but it's a supernatural reality. So that the kingdom of God is more real than the building we're in and the chairs you sit on, because it lasts forever. This building will pass away at some, at some point, but we're part of a supernatural work, um, that there are things that are going on in the spirit realm when we worship that are beyond what we can see. Strongholds are being torn down. People are being set free. Healing is taking place just simply because we gather as the body and we lift up the name of Jesus in worship. So when we gather together and we pray, uh, we intercede on the behalf of others or other things going on. Things shift. Things happen. God does things. And so we're just going to open up this morning. We're going to pray for those who are making a public declaration of their faith today. We're going to intercede for those guys. Because God's not only going to do a work in them, God will do a work through their declaration of faith in other people. And we get to be a part of that today as we hold them up in prayer. Is that cool? We're good? You guys awake? This is real stuff. It's good stuff. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together today. Lord, that we are part of a kingdom that is not passing away. We are part of a kingdom that can't be shaken. That you have always been and you will always be. And Father, that you said if two or more gathered together in your name, touching any one thing, that we have what we ask. Lord, we thank you that you hear, that you hear our prayers, that you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So Father, I pray today, along with my whole family here this morning at the 8 a.m., for those folks who are making a public declaration today, that you would fill them with boldness, that you would fill them with your power, that today would be a marked day in their journey, where it's not just a matter that they just believe, but they, they have publicly declared that they are saying that they're not only a child of God, but they are also part of the family, that they are identifying with you in death and coming up in resurrection, and that they are declaring their resurrection people. So Father, we pray Lord, that they would be uh, filled with strength and that the church would be encouraged. Thank you for the work that you're going to do in them, that they'll never be the same. So, Father, we just agree together for it in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Well, we want to kick around a few thoughts with you um, uh, related to that this morning as we chat. Um, I had the privilege yesterday of standing about right here and being a witness to a miracle yesterday. And... uh, 
I, I don't know um, what folks think that ministers do. Sometimes we're really not sure what we're doing either. Um, and we're just chasing Jesus and trying to be obedient to what he says. And folks sometimes say, well, tell me about what you do. And so we'll talk a little bit about all the different things that go on in church life. And they'll say, but well, what's one of your favorite things? And one of the things I always tell them is weddings are one of my favorite things. Because when you're a pastor and you officiate a wedding like I did yesterday standing right here, you get a front row seat to a miracle. Because only God takes two people and makes them one. Marriages don't happen in churches. Divorces don't happen in courtrooms. Right? Those are all things that the Lord does in the heart. And the Lord's the one that does it. And so when you get a chance to bless two people and to pray for them and to oversee and guide them through as they're making declarations of love to one another, that you get to, to witness this miracle. And it was the coolest thing yesterday to watch two families be blended together, to see two moms come up and light each of the two candles that will be used as a unity candle to show where two people become one. That it's a mystery to be sure, but it is a reality that God takes two people and intertwines them. It becomes a symbol of the kingdom of God. I just absolutely, absolutely love weddings because everyone that's in Christ is a miracle. It's absolutely a miracle that God does. There are two things traditionally that we do in, in Western weddings. One is the exchange of vows, right? Um, how many of you guys, anybody in here wrote your own vows at your wedding? How many of you memorized them and recited them? Or did you read them? Did you do that? You would do that. That's amazing. That's amazing. How many of you guys had traditional vows to have and to hold, right? Anybody? One of the other things that we do is we exchange rings, right? A symbol of the vow, of the covenant that you make. Now, with weddings, we believe as the church that they are covenants, not contracts, Okay. Now, uh, what you see with a lot that's out in the world is you have people who make contracts with one another. A contract is a mutually beneficial relationship between two parties where if I pay you this much, you do this work. You don't do this work, I don't pay you. Right? But really, that's not what weddings are about. There's a lot of marriages that struggle because they're operating under a contract where if you make me happy, then I'll work on making you happy. And when nobody's happy, the marriage falls apart. But the way God laid it out, the miracle that he does is it's about covenants, where it's an unconditional relationship, where I lay down my life for you, regardless, right? It's amazing what God does. So vows are where two people stand, as I stood here yesterday, and they make a declaration of their love and the covenant that they're making to the other person. And then that person declares verbally to the other person their love and the covenant that they're making. And then there are rings. And the rings are the symbol of the declaration that they've made for everyone else. That everywhere they go and they see a wedding band on their hand, it's a declaration that I have made a covenant to someone. Right? For everyone else to see. Baptism is like that. We're going to be doing that. We have people who have made a declaration of love to God, that they have given their life to God because he made the ultimate, loud, down through all the ages declaration of love for us. That he said, right, 
that he lays down his life, that there's no greater love than a man lay down his life for his friends. That John 3.16, as I quote so often up here, because I'm just determined as a career, as a minister, to make sure that that passage doesn't become just a little Sunday school scripture, but that it becomes reality to us, that we settle, that that is one of the pinnacle bedrock statements in scripture, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. A declaration of his love and commitment to us. So that when we respond in faith and we say, I believe in you, I love you, we have had an exchange of vows. Are we okay with us? Then when folks, as the Bible says, that baptism is the next step for the believer, we're going to look at that in just a minute, that it is becomes a public declaration to everyone of that covenant, that I have identified with Christ in his death and his resurrection, that I've been buried with Christ and I have been raised to life and he now lives in me. And when people get baptized, it is declaring to everyone else. It's the wedding ring that says, I'm in a covenant relationship with God, that he loves me more than I could ever dream and I have given him my life, right? As it talked about with the disciples and scripture says that they loved not their lives even unto death till death do us part, right? It's an amazing thing. And I just, it was all in my mind yesterday as we were having the wedding here and I knew we would be doing some baptisms today and talking about baptism and declarations here in the first service. We've been in a series of messages now for a number of weeks called Rise, Receive, and Go. And last week we talked about Matthew chapter 28 where Jesus makes the great commission statement um, to the disciples. And I knew that we would be making, doing baptisms the Sunday after. And um, I was talking to Pastor Catherine. Uh, she's going to be sharing with us next week. And we, she mentioned some things to me about resurrection people. And it got me thinking about today and sharing today a little bit. So one of the things I want to tell you about resurrection people today is that resurrection people are a people who declare. That we don't just say that we are in love with God that we are people who love God like we sang this morning, but that we're going to keep it behind closed doors. That we're not trying to hide the fact that we are in relationship with God, that he has given all for the children to come home. That we by faith believe in him and that we believe the kingdom is more real than the chairs we sit on as we prayed just a minute ago. That we don't keep that behind closed doors, but that we are a people by the command of God who should be people of declaration. And that's what baptism does. It is a declaration of this covenant that we have. So that today when folks get baptized in the second service, when they're um, making that public declaration of their faith, it's a miracle that takes place. You're looking at a dead person who is now alive. If you're in Christ, that's your story. You once were a people of no hope, and now because of Christ you have hope. That's something to be shared, not sat upon. Amen? So good. I was just so excited over this because something's taking place that only God can do. And in addition, miracles not only have taken place because they were raised to life, I believe that when they publicly declare today, miracles will take place in the house. When people are encouraged, that the Spirit of God will reach out and touch somebody else's heart and say, you know what, I don't have to sit on my faith either that I can become a person that makes a declaration. If God can do that for them, I know God can use me as well. That encouragement will take place. Well, we've been talking about in this series of messages last couple of Sundays, we've made this statement. 
That you weren't just saved from something, but that you were saved for something. You're not just saved from something, but you were saved for something. And so often in church history, a lot has been made about hell, which is the grand prize here uh, is that you get to miss hell, right? If you're in Jesus, that's a good thing, you know? Hell's hot. I don't like to be burned. So we, um, missing hell is a good thing. And going to heaven is an amazing thing. But one of the problems is in church, we've sometimes put the emphasis on the wrong thing. That Christianity is really not at its center about missing hell and going to heaven. Those are results. The center of Christianity is exactly what's declared in Scripture, where it says that this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. The deal here is not to attend Sunday in and Sunday out. The deal here isn't to do a few good deeds. The deal isn't to put money in the plate. The deal isn't to miss hell or go to heaven. The the deal is to know Jesus Christ. Because when you know Jesus Christ and he has transformed your life and you become a resurrection person, Hell's off the menu. Heaven is an absolute certainty. And then we begin to do these things out of life, not out of compulsion. That we gather together and worship corporately because we can't stand being away from somewhere where Jesus is going to do something. And because we get to gather together with our brothers and sisters and be encouraged, as it says in the scriptures, that they admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Where did they do it? They did it where they gathered together is where they encouraged one another like that. That we want to be where God is moving and doing things. That we want to obey the commands of scripture because God gave commands to us because he knew that they would bless us and grow us and transform us. And honestly, that we would absolutely love it and that we would be more intimate with him. And we spend tons of time running around trying to do things our own way to build a life that we want for ourselves. When in reality, if we would just find our life in Christ and follow and obey his commands, we would have more life than we could ever dream. It's the way he designed it. It's the reason he laid it out. If he's a good, good father, then he laid out the things the way he laid them out for the benefit of his children. I mean, what good parent does not want to do things for the benefit of their children? People who do things to the detriment of their children, there are words for that. It's called abuse, neglect. God is not an abusive father, right? He's a good father. And the things that he's laid out for us are for the benefit and the blessing of his children. So baptism is much more than just people getting wet or doing something symbolic. It's declaring what Jesus has done. It changes things. It's making a decision to no longer sit on the sidelines. As we talked about last year when we did this kind of service, we said it's about putting on the jersey and getting in the game. That I'm not just going to sit around And miss out on some of what I was designed for. So then turn then, that means that church, the little C church as we call it, because the big C church is the people. This building which we happen to call a church is just a place where the church gathers. Right? And that when you head back out the doors in a little bit, this just kind of is a building because the church left the building. Right? You're it. You are God's plan on the earth. So this isn't just some social activity. This isn't something we do that's a performance-based acceptance deal. 
where if we do it, we'll be acceptable to God. You understand, none of us are acceptable to God. Not on our best day, because none of us are perfect. And perfection was the standard. And God knew the children could never meet it, so he just met it for us and then invited us in. It's the God we serve. I love what Bob Coughlin says in his book, Worship Matters. I've given you this quote before, but it's one of those life quotes for me. He says that there's nothing about you, there's nothing about your worship that's acceptable to God. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because of his death and resurrection, he accepts you and accepts your worship as if his own son is offering it. That's a good deal. It's not just some social activity. We have been invited into this miraculous, powerful process. It's called church. It's a movement that was established by Jesus Christ that he's building and unfolding on the earth. And we, as the people, need to be committed to the unfolding of that kingdom, right? I think one of the more painful things in family is when one of the children is struggling in their life and maybe they're making decisions that are not best for them. We sometimes say maybe they're going through a rebellious phrase. Um, I have permission to say this. He'd be okay with it. But my brother had a number of years where he really struggled in some of his decision-making process. My father referred to it as that he took a seven-year sabbatical from his brain. Um, But the truth is it's one of the more painful things in a family when there's someone in the family who is not a part of what the family is about and what's best for them, right? This is a movement where God's unfolding the kingdom. We get to be a part of the family business of unfolding the kingdom. And that when we sometimes are living beneath the privilege God created us for, one, I know it's painful for God because he also knows that we get robbed in the process of what he wants to unfold in our life. This is a kingdom unfolding process and Jesus is building his church and the way it works and the way it's getting built is by family. It's the way that God intended it. Family is the plan. Now, I know if it were up to me as a human being and we understand family from the human perspective, not from the perfect perspective, which is what God is building. If it were up to me, I don't know that I would do it that way. I don't know. I mean, how many of you think about your family and like, that's not a plan to save the earth, right? I mean, I remember my dad embarrassing the tar out of us as kids when he would drive us to school to drop us off in the morning. He's wearing full-on pajamas and corduroy bedroom slippers, and he would get out of the car and hug you in front of your friends, you know? Um, I don't know. I think about my own kids when they are fighting in the house or they're doing everything they can to not do what you ask them to do. We've been in this process lately with Olivia where it's time for bed and like, okay, Olivia, you need to go to the bathroom, brush your teeth or whatever. And she finds like six other things that are absolutely necessary to do in the process. Like, no, just go brush your teeth. And she's like, Daddy, did you see this picture I drew today? Just go brush your teeth. Well, Daddy, I got to go put my books in my book bag. No, go brush your teeth, right? And before long, you just want to squeeze them. Their head pops off or whatever. So, and I'm thinking, I don't know that family would be the plan that I would make. But it is the plan that God has made, which means he evidently sees some things that we don't see. We're going to do a series of messages this summer um, talking about family. And uh, we're going to talk about not just 
physical families, which it certainly will apply to that. We're going to talk about this family. We're going to talk about relationships. We're going to talk about conflict. How do you handle conflict? How do we walk in the purposes that God created us for? We're super, super excited about that. And do you know that time and time again, statistics and research shows that healthy families change society? Do you know that? When families operate the way they should operate, you look at scriptural principles, good moral principles, when there are complete families you know, or when there is a single parent, because sometimes there are single parent situations and they are working hard and godly raising their children and instilling good values in them. When families are healthy like that, you find children who grow up and make good decisions and have healthy families and good work ethics and society changes in good ways. How much more is that true for the kingdom of God family when we do what God said and pull together and are the healthy family that that will change the earth? We are God's plan A. You look around the room in the quiet of an eight o'clock service on Sunday morning. God's betting on you. What's more amazing than that in reality is he's betting on Jesus in you. And I believe that he can do that, right? Jesus can get it done. So then the question is, what does this look like? If family is the plan, and that's the way God's going to unfold it on the earth, and that we are a people who declares, how does this work? Well, last week, if you want to flip over to Matthew 28, I just want to read this to you again where we said that uh, resurrection people, and if you haven't been here, resurrection people is this, is that Jesus himself, who died for the sins of the world, and rose again from the grave, conquering death and hell, and, uh, uh, and really doing the complete work for us because his death on the cross by his shed blood took care of the penalty that sin requires. His resurrection conquered the final enemy for humankind, which is death. And now even death doesn't have the final word for those who believe in Jesus. And he said in John 14, 6, that he's the only way to the Father. If we place our faith in Jesus, then we become resurrection people. We become resurrection people. Why? Because Jesus himself is resurrection. Jesus didn't, didn't just have a resurrection. Death never had a chance. Jesus is resurrection himself. And so that when you believe in Jesus, and as the scripture tells us that he takes up residence in us, that he comes to live in our lives, that the kingdom of God resides within you when you have faith in Christ. And you are now a resurrection person. Okay? One of the things we talked about with resurrection people is that we are a people who go. That we're a sent people. And this is that passage of scripture that we looked at. This is Matthew 28, starting with verse 18. Then Jesus came to them, it was the disciples, and this is after his resurrection, and he said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. And what we talked about last week was that we can be a people that don't have to be afraid. We can be people of courage because all authority in heaven and earth lives in you if you have faith in Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Christ and he lives in you, all authority in heaven and earth lives in you. 
Also says there in verse 20 that he's going to be there with you, uh, be with you to the end of the age. So not only does all authority in heaven and earth live in you, his name is Jesus, but that he goes with you everywhere you go, that you're never alone. So we can take courage and be those people who go and share our faith and see people baptized and that we teach them to obey the things that Jesus has commanded. And he had been preparing his disciples for this moment for three years. By his teachings, by his actions, by his love, by his patience with them, um, getting them in the game, giving them things to do, that he was with them, um, knowing that they wouldn't be able to do it on their own. Jesus was physically present with them. And then Jesus is going to go on and make a statement to them where he says, but I'm going to want you to wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. Why? Because they were going to need power to be about their business. They needed this. What was this power? It was the authority of Jesus. It was his presence that was going to take up residence with them. It's the Holy Spirit was going to fill them with power so that they could go and be about this business of declaring Jesus to the world. That they wouldn't be able to do it on their own, so he was going to do it in them. So it's one of my favorite things in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, which we just read, Jesus says, go. Then right over in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, wait. He says, go. But right after that, he says, wait. Look over at Acts chapter 1 with me. Just a couple uh, books over. Acts chapter 1. I'm going to look at uh, verse 4. It says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my, gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom uh, uh, to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority. Now, the reason I backed up and read from here, I love this, because basically Jesus is, gives them an instruction of something to do, and the first thing they do is they have a question. And they're like, oh, okay, so now we're going to get everything we want? Because that's what they wanted. They wanted the kingdom to be restored to Israel, right? Because they thought it would be a big thing for them. They would be in charge. Now do we get what we want? And what Jesus says to them, <laughs> he says, hey, it's not for you to know that. You just need to do what I told you to do. Right? You ever say that to your kids? All right. And then verse 8, he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, they wanted the answer they wanted, but he was giving them a promise of power to change the world. Sometimes we just need to respond to what Jesus has said. We often want to have it all figured out. Sometimes we just need to go ahead and just take the step and be obedient to what Jesus has said because what they were getting ready to be given is far better than what they wanted. They're not going to be able to go without this power. And what's interesting here is Jesus says, when you receive this power, you're going to be my witnesses. And that leads us to answer, ask the question then, witnesses of what? I mean, when I hear the word witness, I think about courtrooms, right? I don't know how many of you guys like courtroom dramas and they put the person on the stand and that's where all the interesting stuff always comes out. 
says, you're going to be my witnesses. Witnesses of what? Well, Jesus answers the question right there. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. That it's witnesses of him. I'll make this statement to you this morning. It's awfully hard to be a true witness of something you don't know and you haven't seen. Right? Just lovingly, because maybe, you know, I know it's not anybody here this morning, but lovingly I would submit to you, our churches often are full of people who are going through some religious exercise, but they don't know and they haven't seen. Because it goes back to what my dad talked about a few weeks ago about receiving. It's not about intellectually saying, I agree with what the Bible says. It's about receiving in what the Bible talks about, which is this man, Jesus. It's about knowing him. It's about making room in your life. The way you make room in your life is you lay down your life and you get his life, right? You take up your cross, you deny yourself, and you follow him is what the scripture says. Lord, you take all of me because I know in that process I get all of you. That's a pretty doggone good exchange. And in that moment, you can become a witness of what you have received. I was sitting at the table with somebody this week having lunch. And at that lunch meeting, we were talking about an experience that this person had had with the Lord and a couple of other people who don't really know the Lord were like, no, no, you're crazy. That didn't happen. And he's sitting there going, I was there. I saw it. I know what God did. Nobody can take that from him. He's a witness, right? I know what Jesus has done in my life. And you might, because there's a lot of people in here who are way smarter than I am, I'm sure. And uh, you may have some of the best arguments in the world related to some things in terms of how you interpret scripture or whatnot. But I know that I know that I know deep down in my knower, as Pastor Bill Salmon says, what God's done in my life. You can't argue that away from me. You can't take that away from me. I'm a witness to what God has done in my life. I've seen it. Okay? Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Why? Because he's going to fill them up. They're going to receive power from on high. And then we get the incredible example. We see it happen over in Acts chapter 2. I would encourage you to read it, to read the account on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit's poured out. We don't have time to go all the way through that this morning. But the first verse there in chapter 2 says that when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place and suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And it goes on to read that as they were speaking, it drew all the people together. Did it run people off? No, it drew people together. Why? Because they heard the gospel being preached in their own language. They saw something miraculous take place. They were a witness to a miracle and they said, my goodness, something's happening. And not everybody liked it. Some people thought they were drunk. And they said, these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Good gracious. No, God's moving. It's real. Listen, two things there. One is, if you hear of or see that God is moving in something, God's stirring in your heart, go, gather together. Dad says, the deal is to find out what God's doing and be there. That's what I hear my dad say all the time. 
He says the deepest thing he knows about ministry is show up. Right? The second thing, though, is often when God's moving, there are going to be people who don't understand it. These men are drunk. Now, what did Peter do? He didn't freak out. He didn't tell them they were dumb. You read on. He just preaches Jesus to them, to everybody that was there. He tells them about what Jesus did and what happened to him in the death, his death and resurrection. And if you look down at verse 36, which is the end of his message he preaches there. This is his last statement, his sermon to all the people that had gathered, including the ones that thought they were weird. And he says this, Therefore let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He goes on. I love this. It says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What did he do? Did he tell them they were dumb? Did he try to freak out and defend what was happening in the manifestation and move of the Holy Spirit? No. He just preached Jesus to them. He didn't say, well, let me explain to you about tongues of fire. No. He just told them about Jesus and Jesus, the message of Jesus and what he had done. He declared Jesus because of the power that was in him and the other people listening were cut to the heart. In other words, it touched their heart. It moved their heart. And they responded and they said, what have we got to do? We want this. This Jesus, we want this. What have we got to do? Peter replied, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are four things here I just want to leave you with real quick before we close this morning. And if I can get um, Richard or whoever you guys come on, um, we're just going to close up. Four things he lists here. People who declare. We preach Jesus in this place. We have at least seven people that are going to make a declaration of their own in the next service. Why? Because they heard about Jesus and they responded. They were cut to the heart. Four things in this passage. He said, repent. Number two, be baptized. Be filled with the Spirit. And then we're going to go down and look, starting in Acts 42, following the result, is to be the church. There are four things here. And I think those four things cover every single person sitting in this room. Because you are either here today... And you've not had this resurrection encounter with the resurrection, Lord, that you've not placed your faith in Jesus. What have you got to do? Repent. You place your faith in Jesus. The word repent in this passage and all throughout the New Testament, it means this. It means to change the mind. Sometimes it's been taught or looked over over the years to, well, you've got to feel terrible enough about what you've done in your life till at some point somebody tells you, okay, you feel bad enough, you're good now. And that's not the deal. The repent just simply means choose Jesus. Stop choosing what you've been choosing. Change the mind. You surrender your life to him and you receive him. Now, what is included in all of that? Well, it infers that we're now going to follow him, which means we're going to stop following where we were going. We're going to stop following ourselves. We're going to follow Jesus. But I'm telling you, that deal's worth it. I remember there was a kid in my youth group years ago and I was talking with him about the Lord for months and months and months and every single time he would say, 
ah, I just got too much stuff that I don't want to give up. I just have too much stuff I don't want to give up. And what he couldn't wrap his brain around is what was offered to him in repenting. Choosing Jesus was far better than the stuff he was trying to hold on to. Because so often the things we love so much and the things that we are afraid of losing are the very things that are killing us anyway. Right? What do we got to do? Repent. The second thing he says is be baptized. He didn't say jump in a small group. He didn't say go volunteer at whatever. Right? He didn't say start tithing. (laughs) He said be baptized. Why? Because it is essential for us that we walk in what was given to us. And part of what was given to us is that it's not to be contained. Who here wants to go take a swim in the pond in front of this church? There's a word for it. It's called stagnant water. It gets really green. It's really dark. You can't see the bottom. You don't know what swims in it. You for sure don't want to drink it because it's stagnant and nasty. Yes? But when we start talking about mountain streams that spring up from out of the ground and they are as clear, as clear as they can be, water is actually safe for drinking. It's moving water. It's going somewhere. This stuff was never meant to be stagnant in your life. The receiving of Christ, as the Bible describes it, is for there to be a river of living water flowing out of you. It's meant to be declared. It's meant to be lived. And that's why the second thing Peter says, what you got to do, he says, be baptized. I'm not sitting on the sidelines anymore. It's to be declared. The third thing that he shares right there in that short little statement, what have we got to do? He says, you receive the Holy Spirit. And there's a couple of things real quick, and we don't have time to unpack this today. I would encourage you to go back um, to my dad's message just two weeks ago where he talked about receiving, and he unpacked this for a whole service, and it's amazing. When you put your faith in Christ, all of God takes up residence in you. Okay, so sometimes we talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit and people think, okay, well, I got Jesus in my heart, but now I got to get the Holy Spirit. No. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So when you put your faith in Christ, God comes to live in you. The fullness of who he is is in here. The life is in here. But the issue is, Not necessarily every area of your life is surrendered. I am smart enough to know that there are areas of all of our lives in here that are not surrendered to the Lord. Yes? Anybody driving traffic this week? It's always my phrase. It's a good litmus test about how we're doing, right? So this whole thing about the receiving of the Spirit, the Spirit flowing in our lives, is not just that we receive and believe in Jesus, but then we begin to open up for the flow of him in every area of our life, that I am going to follow his leading, that I am submitted to what he wants to do, that he can be the Lord over every area of my life, not just Jesus in my heart, not just in my head that I believe in him, but that whatever the spirit leads me to do with my finances, because the wallet's always the thing that guides us so hard because we're so dependent on it because we think we provide for ourselves, right? And we forget that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. Oh, Lord, you can have my children. Whatever you lead me to do with my children, 
right? That we begin to allow his spirit to guide us. And the Bible says that if anyone wants to receive the Holy Spirit, not that he's, that he's in there, but to welcome him into every area of their life, the Bible just says to ask. And there are some of us in here today that have been trying to do our relationship with Jesus in our own strength. And that today's the day when you need to say, Lord, I need your spirit to lead and guide me. I need your power that is within me to fill every area of my life. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is all about. It's not about receiving something you don't have, because if you're in Christ, all of God's there. But it's about the release of something you have into every area of your life. And I'm telling you, if you're trying to do your relationship with Jesus in your own strength, listen, I told you, heaven's heaven's a a part of the deal, right? You're going to bust heaven wide open. But you're likely to get your brains beat out as you do things in your own strength. But the spirit-led life is what allows you to stand in the midst of the most horrible circumstances and be at peace. It's that moment when you have the wisdom and the knowledge that you knew didn't come from you because you had no clue what to do. Those things can begin to bear fruit in your life. It's where you can begin to see Galatians chapter 5, verse 20 really, really begin to take traction in your life where you see the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control at work in your life. And the last thing he says here is it goes down to results. What do we see happening after that? If you have put your faith in Christ, if you've been filled with his spirit, if you've been baptized, what's the deal? Are you done? I mean, do you get in the recliner and put your feet up and read a good book? No, you were saved for something. And we see it unfold in the next verses down where we need to be the church. Acts chapter 2, look at verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with all the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. Real quickly, being the church, first and foremost means be devoted. It's not just some uh, on my own, I'm kind of a person of faith, a little private, it's very personal to me. No, it's about we're devoted to this thing. We as the church are devoted to the teachings that the apostles have given us in these scriptures. We not only need to read them and know them or listen to them being taught and know them, but devotion here means to put them into practice. Jesus himself said, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house upon the rock and when everything goes nuts, the house won't fall. But anyone who doesn't hear these words of mine and put them into practice It's like the man who builds his house upon the sand, and when the storm comes, it all falls apart. It's incomplete without practice. It's amazing here, all the things that are listed, that they were devoted to the teaching, but they were devoted to fellowship, which means you can't do this alone. If you're not plugged in, and you don't have a small group, you don't have other Christians you're meeting with and doing life with, you are vulnerable to have your candy stolen. (laughs) You're meant to do this with other people. That they were devoted to the intimate pursuit of God. It says breaking of bread and prayer. Those were acts of worship. 
They were devoted to the practice of faith, to celebrate, to take communion, to continue in prayer. They were dedicated really in the way that produced awe and wonder. The truth is, I know people who are really devoted to the Lord as a church and pursuing him. Those are people that celebrate miracles all over the place. You ever get annoyed by those people sometimes? It's like they get a flat tire and they go, bless Jesus, I got a little bit of time to pray on the side of the road, right? They begin to find miracles. They're in awe and in wonder of God in every moment because there's never a moment where God's not with them. And it's produced out of their devotion. These guys were unified, if you look at these passages of Scripture, that they were all together on the same journey. But listen, gang, unified as the body of Christ does not mean uniformity. It does not mean that we all like the same music. It doesn't mean that we all read necessarily from the same translation of the Bible, same version, right? We've got KJV people, NIV people, ESV people, and ABC people, right? doesn't mean necessarily that we all read from the same translation necessarily. It doesn't mean that we all prefer the same thing in church. It doesn't mean that we all dress alike. I mean, my goodness, if you read 1 Corinthians 12, the diversity within the body that's unified together is part of what the deal is. It's beautiful. Man, if we had three Olivia's in our house, we would be really tired. But we don't. We have three very different, amazing children, but we are one Hobbes family. We're on the same journey together. And so this part of being the church is being unified around what? It's Jesus. It's the one that we are a witness of and a witness to. Then it says that they were devoted to worship, that there was corporate worship. It said that they continued daily in the temple courts, that daily practices of worship, not just Sundays, daily practices of worship was part of the deal. That they were meeting in homes and fellowship. They were eating meals together. That being family out in the community is part of the deal. Just showing up to church, sliding in a little late, leaving a little early and not knowing anybody leaves you vulnerable to get eaten. The scripture says that the enemy roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if you watch nature shows, the lion's always after the one that straggles out by itself. That we do this together. And it says that they praise God with their lives and that this lifestyle of being the church produced a harvest because the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. Listen, if you guys stand with me today, I know that for some of you this may be super familiar, but a couple things today. We are to be a people who declare. This thing's either true or it's not. And if it is true, then we have every reason to shout from the mountaintops, to love our neighbors, to be kind to our enemies, to be radically generous. We have every reason to repent because we have nothing to fear from God. We have every reason to be obedient and publicly declare our faith in baptism if we haven't done that. Why? Because God has something incredible in store for you, and he has something overwhelmingly amazing that he wants to do through you in the community of faith. The church of Jesus Christ is God's chosen instrument to unfold the kingdom of God on the earth. And we need to be about his business. Amen? Read it. Check me out this week. See if you come to the same conclusion. You're God's plan A. You're God's plan A. I want to pray for you. As I pray with you today, the four things. The altar will be open. These guys will continue, or Richard will continue and worship here for a few. If today's your day to repent, I know Craig is here. Pastor Catherine is here. Um, we have some of our prayer team as well. Love to pray with you. 
about meeting Jesus today. You don't have to live the way you've been living anymore, but you can be set free. Repent. If you've not been baptized and the Lord is stirring this in your heart, all you got, you got an hour and 15 minutes to go home and grab a bathing suit. Or you can just stick around and we'll dunk in the clothes you got on. We got towels, it's good. But just, just publicly declare your faith. We're going to be doing that today at 1045. And for you, if today's not your day, but you know you need to do it, all you got to do is check in at guest services, sign up. Man, we'll do it Tuesday at 3 o'clock. We just want to be obedient to what Jesus has said do. Because if Jesus said it, it can only be amazing. Three, if you're doing this thing in your own strength, today's the day where you can receive, you can welcome that flow. You can unblock the flow of that river. No stagnant water in your life with the move of the Holy Spirit. And we'll lay hands on you and pray for you. The Bible just says ask. And lastly, the charge is just choose to do it. You got to choose to go be the church. Nobody can make you plug in. Well, nobody greeted me today. Will you go greet somebody? Right? We're all people here. Well, I don't know those people. Well, the way that works is, hi, my name is so-and-so. What's your name? What do you do? Well, this is what I do. Well, hey, can we get lunch? That's how that works. Right? To be corporate family together and see what God does. Father, I thank you for these folks today. Father, I thank you for these faithful folks here at 8 o'clock, early on Sunday. We had the opportunity to intercede for the work you're going to be doing today in the next service with folks who publicly declare. But also we get to be here together for the supernatural move of the unfold of the king, unfolding of your kingdom that you're doing right now in this moment with this crowd. Father, I thank you for all the needs that are represented in the room this morning. You're aware of every single one. You know what their next steps are. You've been tugging at their heart. We just need to respond. Father, I pray that you fill them afresh today, every single one of them. That they are able to step into the life that you created them for. And that we'll see addiction broken in these outer banks. We will see hungry homes fed. We will see lost people come home. And it's all because these folks are being the church. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. As Richard sings, you guys are free to go. Um, if you need